So the word is slanted. The dictionary would say that the definition is to not be level or not be straight up and down. The best example I can give you is the top part of this stand. The bottom part is straight up and down. This part is slanted. Of all the unlikely places for me to go to help us understand slanted and its significance for us, I go to American poetry. You know I'm a poetic kind of guy. I don't remember ever reading any poetry when it was assigned to me in college. Well, maybe college, maybe, but certainly not high school. So for me to go to poetry ought to tell you something. But I go to that great American poet, Emily Dickinson, who, as I understand it, is given credit for a new approach in the rhyme scheme of poetry, and it's called slant rhyme. Here's a poem that she wrote that helps drive us to the message today. She says this, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise as lightning to the child eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Now here's what I think she means by that. Now we're really in dangerous territory when I start interpreting poetry. But here's what I think she says. I'll take that last couple of lines there. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The idea is that when a child first encounters lightning and the shocking effect that it has on their senses, when someone comes in behind that and explains for them what they saw, it eases their anxiety. What Dickinson seems to say to us, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind, is the reality for us that we find embodied in the teaching of Jesus Christ. And that is that sometimes we can't handle the truth very well. Maybe Dickinson would have signed off on that great line of American cinematic history when Jack Nicholson, who is on the stand as a colonel in the Marines in the movie A Few Good Men, is being pressed by Tom, whatever his name is, character, Cruz is his name, and he keeps pushing him for the truth, and finally Jack Nicholson's character breaks down and he says, you can't handle the truth. I think Dickinson might have signed off on that. And so she created this visual in words for us that says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. It's coming from the backside so that we are not defended against it. It's the move from the side, that subversive truth that we're not ready for, and all of a sudden it assaults us. Tell it slant. It is... The preacher's dilemma, I believe. The dilemma is how can we speak the truth as we are called to do in Scripture when so many of our listeners are sensitive and easily offended? Preachers have had to learn 
to tell it slant. Because the straight up assault of the truth gets them fired in many churches. So what I'd like to do today is maybe adopt Miss Dickinson's approach. Now, let's go to a better authority than that. I want to take, not just today, but through the entire summer, I want us to consider the slant truth-telling of Jesus Christ, the best truth-teller of all time. Matthew chapter 13 is where we find ourselves today. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of give you an overview of where we're going to be going in this summer series. What, what I want to do is for us to come to some of the great truths of what it means to be a child of God, to live in this thing we call the kingdom of God. But I want to do it through Jesus' words because I, I think that he, being the master storyteller, as Aaron kind of pushed us this morning in the entry part, uh, I, I want to elaborate on that even more. Because Jesus, in his truth-telling, often told it slant. And as a matter of fact, when we come to the passage we're going to look at today, he gives us his reason for doing that. And it's really kind of a... Uh, well, it's disconcerting. It's, it's almost like we read what he has to say as to his rationale for using parables in the way he teaches. Uh, and it sounds a little bit closed-systemed to me. As a matter of fact, there would be some of those of what is more the, excuse me, the Calvinistic approach uh, to theology who would take some of the stuff that we're about to read and say, you see there, God only chooses a handful of people who get it. But the reality is that the message goes out to all. It is not that God only has the message for a few. It is, in fact, that a few are the ones who are willing to receive the message and so many others are given the opportunity and yet close their ears to it. And so we're going to look as we go through this summer at the parables of Jesus as he tells it slant to us. He comes at it from the side for us when we're not expecting it and maybe even where we can't see it right away. So let's pick up reading in verse 10. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. It's actually now we're picking up after he has told one of these parables. I'll come back to that uh, at great length in a little bit, but let's read what he says as to the rationale. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, They do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, now Jesus quotes for them this passage from the Old Testament, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. 
For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And it almost sounds like as we read through that, that it is for this little closed system that Jesus is teaching. But the reality is you don't get to Matthew chapter 13 unless you go through Matthew chapter 12. And we're not going to take the time to do it today, but I would encourage you to go back and read and fill in the blanks from the first 12 chapters of Matthew. And you will find that by the time we get to chapter 12, there is this rising sense of rejection of who Jesus is among the Jewish people, or at least their leaders. So they begin to press him and they begin to kind of question some things about him and they want signs. And so Jesus at that point, because they have been given the opportunity to respond to who he is, then he begins to take the truths of the kingdom of God and he begins to almost cryptically begin to lay it out for his disciples. We call that parables. So what I've done here. Uh, by choosing this topic for the summer, I feel like that I've sentenced myself. As I started into this study of the the parables, and I made the decision probably two months ago or so to do this. I had kind of wanted to do it before I started the previous series that we were in about being connected, and I just didn't feel like the time was right. And so when I embraced this, I thought, okay, we'll do that through the summer. It's a great thing to do. Now I feel like, based on the study I've done and looking into these parables, I feel like I had a dump truck load of dirt dumped in my front yard and my job is to move it to the backyard with nothing more than a set of chopsticks. The parables is a wealth of information for us about the kingdom of God. There's so much misapplication and poor exegesis of these parables, that it demands our best attention when we come to it. Part of what I'm going to do, just to throw it out here for you, we will teach as we come to the parables through the course of the summer on Sunday mornings. I'll take one, probably sometimes two on Sunday mornings and do that. And then we'll come back on Wednesday night in a Bible study that I'll lead from 6.15 to 7 on Wednesday nights. uh, And we'll pick apart some of the things. We'll go much deeper into how those parables came to be understood and some other things. We'll pull in other parables and how to understand parables and all of that. So this is kind of a a double-barrel shotgun approach this summer to just kind of immerse ourselves into these teachings of Christ and in the process for me to hand you some more Bible study tools. As we do that, I want to make sure that we get what's going on in all of this. It's... This tell it slant, the, the whole series we're calling slanted because I want it to, to just drill into our heads when we come to these parts of Bible studies. We cannot come half-mindedly or absent-mindedly. Jesus is saying to his disciples, these are critical truths. Remember, Jesus had three years to build relationship with these guys, to teach them everything they needed to know for him to leave and leave the whole Christian enterprise in their laps. And one of the things that he did better than anybody has ever done in history is the use of parables to teach truth. But they didn't get it. A lot of the time, they didn't get it. This passage we're about to look at, they didn't get it then. So much so that he said, okay, let let me explain this for you. I feel like, you know the old saying, I keep throwing them, but you ain't catching them. It's like my dad. I remember vividly my dad many times as he would try to teach me something uh, and I didn't get it. 
he would kind of shake his head and he'd say, you know, sometimes my best shots go right over your head. I think that's what we find with the disciples here. And that helps me because I come to some of these parables and I go, what? What is he saying with that? Well, let's look at this one as a point of reference. This is in Matthew chapter 13. It's this beginning point. I'm going to come back and talk about Luke here as we get to the end of this thing. But here's what I want to do today. I kind of want to get this in reverse because what we often do is on this particular parable especially, we jump to the conclusions and to the summary and the teaching that Jesus did later. He tells the parable, then he comes back and he explains it. So we come to this and we feel like we know all there is to know about it. So what I want to do today is I want to take this parable and kind of re-engineer how we look at it. I want to come to the slant part. So let's read the parable first and then we'll come back and do that. And it picks up in verse 3. Now let's go and take from, from verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. Very likely he's coming out of the house of Simon Peter's mother. It's a place where many things have happened. Jesus has done a lot of teaching from there and some healing from there. You can go back and fill in the, the backstory on that at your leisure. Jesus steps out of that environment. Teresa and I had the opportunity to go to Israel a number of years ago, and this place where the next few verses occur seems to be in a little natural alcove kind of a place there that forms a natural amphitheater uh, as it's coming off of the Sea of Galilee there. Verse 2, And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sea, uh, to sow, excuse me. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then interestingly, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. I'm looking out here, and as far as I can tell, some of you keep them hidden pretty well, but everybody seems to have ears here. What do you hear from that? I want you to do what Aaron tried to get us to do. Place yourself in that crowd in the first century, on that seashore in the first century, hearing these words without the explanation that follows that all of us know. Put yourself in that situation to hear it for the first time. And Jesus finishes telling this story about a guy who's sowing seeds. And what spiritual truth do you draw from that? He comes on the slant he wants them to hear the story, and in hearing the story, it sucks them, and by definition, us, into the story. How do we get the spiritual truth out of that? I, I know I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I read through that without the explanation that comes later, and I go, what? So what I want to do is I want to take this apart piece by piece, and I want to give it to you without the slant. Since Jesus comes and he makes the points, and we'll look at what he says in his explanation, let me just spend a little time being very offensive. Some of you go, what's new? Welcome back. 
So let's take this. Here's the first one. This first group is the group of what I call the superficial hearers. This is the group that get that seed. Uh, I should stop here. Let me do this real quick. I'll come back to the superficial hearer. Um, I think it's really important that we recognize, um, regardless of what your... Oh, boy, i got to really be careful how I say this. My Bible has subheadings that are written into it. Okay, Now, some Bibles you look at, it's just verse after verse after verse, right? You just understand, uh, Matthew did not write this with verse numbers next to it or chapter numbers. That was added later. Neither did Matthew say, this is a good subheading for this little section. He didn't do that. Matthew tells a story in writing. And so people have come in later, and the publisher often will take these little sections and they'll subheading it so that we can see. Now, mine on the subheading here, what I've just got through saying is the subheadings are not divinely inspired. You with me? If you're going to shoot me, at least shoot me for what I said, not what you think I said, right? Mine says the parable of the sower. That's unfortunate because this parable is not about the sower necessarily, although clearly has a role in this. This parable is about the soil. But one of the other components in this is the seed, right? It's consistent throughout. The sower goes out and he broadcasts. He throws it out the way they did it. Now, we'll come back to what Jesus was doing with that in, in a little bit. But he, he just throws the seed out as was their habit of doing. The, the whole point of the parable is the soil. But the seed itself is consistent throughout. Hear me say this. Don't ever try to believe that something was wrong with the seed here. The seed always, this is the truth of God's kingdom, always bears fruit. Now I know that when you look at this, you go, no, wait a minute, some of it didn't. It always bears fruit. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that when the fruit is not the good soil kind of fruit, the fruit is judgment on the soil. That's important that we hear that. Because God's truth is always God's truth in every element of your life and you, like those people in chapter 12, can choose to reject it. But it still will bear fruit in your life, but it'll be the fruit of judgment for you. So with that in mind, let's look at this because the first one is this group of super superficial hearers. You ever known people who just don't get it when it comes to the truth? This is the group. Well, I know that um, I know that the story is told as if Mahatma Gandhi actually said this. There seems to be some question about that. And so the way the story is told, whether Gandhi actually said this or not, the way it's told still seems to find a place in our society. And that is apparently or allegedly somebody came to Mahatma Gandhi relative to the Christian faith. You know he was not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. He was a great world figure, uh, one of a pacifist and a peace speaker and all of that stuff and a lot of stuff that he did good for mankind, but he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. And allegedly somewhere in the process, somebody came to him and said, what's the deal? His response was the Christianity part and this Jesus part of what you believe, I like But what drives me away from that is I've known too many Christians for me to buy into it. Let me tell you something. If he said that, what a horrible witness 
Christians were to him. But whether he actually said that or not, my guess is that there are people in your circle of friends who believe exactly what he just said. They've been confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ. They know things. Uh, Maybe they grew up in church, whatever, uh, but they just are not buying into it. Case in point, perhaps the best example of that mentality, of this, this superficial hearing, is personified in a kid that was in a youth group back in many, many years ago when I was a youth minister. I had the privilege of, of being a youth minister in a church where there was this family who had three boys. Now, I like these three guys. Uh, now, they were kind of weird, all right, uh, but in a good way kind of weird. Um, uh, they grew up on the mission field in Ecuador. Their parents were missionaries. And one of the reasons I liked them, first of all, they were super smart, which I couldn't relate to at all. But in, in my dealings with them, they'd like to talk about their years on the mission field in Ecuador, eating monkey brains and that kind of stuff. What a great source of stuff for a youth minister, right? But one thing about, especially the oldest son, his name was Jim. Um, Jim had a way of attracting weird people. Now, I know that sounds awfully judgmental, but you didn't know the people that I'm talking about. And Jim would attract these guys, but the reason that he attracted these guys is because he didn't treat anybody like they were weird. Jim and his two brothers were some of the most well-grounded, spiritually mature young people that I ever had the opportunity to work with. They loved God and they loved people, and their mission at school was to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It was an amazing thing to watch for some teenagers. And Jim started bringing these guys to church with him. And they were weird. But every one of them came from horrible family backgrounds. This is one guy that kind of attached himself to Jim was named Charlie. Charlie started coming. And Charlie's background was terrible. His dad was just a no-count, good-for-nothing guy. And Charlie came in with all kinds of baggage, you know, that kind of a agnostic slash atheist approach to life. And he's, oh, this is the best church stuff. I don't do all that church stuff. And, and even though he didn't buy into all that, he kept coming. And Jim would talk to him about the Lord. And I would talk to him about the Lord and his need for Jesus as his Savior. And Charlie always would sit and listen to it. And he'd always be there for the teaching times and the fun times. Everything we did, Charlie was part of it. But Charlie would never take the step to say, I trust Christ as my Savior. One night, it was a Sunday evening, I was in church, and the pastor was up getting ready to do his thing, and Charlie came into the back of the auditorium, he came and he tapped me on the shoulder, he said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. So, went back to my office, and he said these words more or less ex- exactly this, look, uh, I'm out. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I'm leaving. I'm not putting up with this stuff from my home anymore. I'm not going to do it. And so I talked to him. I tried to counsel with him. I said, where are you going to go? I don't know. I'm just going to start driving. I said, Charlie, what are you going to do for money? I don't, I don't have money. I'll figure out a way. I said, that's dumb. Don't do that. And he made up his mind. I'm going. So finally in the process, I got to the point. I said, okay, if you're going to go, this may be my last chance to talk to you. Don't leave Jesus behind. You need Christ as your Savior in your life. Get him into your life. He'll help you with the problems of your life. Charlie said this. This is an exact quote. I'll never forget it because the words echo through the years in my thinking. Mark, 
This may be the biggest mistake of my life, but I'm telling you for the last time, I will not accept Christ as my Savior. And my heart broke. And so Jesus says, verse 4, And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. If we were not to tell it slant here, if you want the truth straight between the eyes, what I might have said to Charlie was, why are you so dense? But that wouldn't have done any good with Charlie. Just like it wouldn't do any good with you, probably. And so instead of saying it that way, Jesus takes this story, taken out of real life for them. The kingdom truth, don't miss this. We'll say this many times as we go through this. The kingdom truth was embodied in Jesus. And the kingdom truth was how he built his life. And so Jesus didn't have to concoct stories to come up with something. All he had to do was walk through the countryside and everywhere around him he saw spiritual truth. One of the reasons that I want us to do this study this summer is to train all of us that way because there are Charlies everywhere in our lives. And they won't take truth straight up. They won't take, you die, you'll go to hell. Now, we need to be sure that they understand that in some way, but most of them, when you say that, they turn you off just like that. So Jesus uses this real-life situation to say, why are you so dense? We find the interpretation for that in verse 19 when Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That's the superficial hearing crowd. And then there's the fickle hearing crowd. You ever known people, church people, Christian people, who are hot and cold you know what I mean by that? Maybe this will help. How many of you are Dallas Cowboys fans? Come on. Be loud, be proud. For those of you who are not Dallas Cowboys fans, we will pray for you. I said that in the first service, and somebody said, please don't. Let me tell you something. It takes, it takes incredible intestinal fortitude to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. You know why? Well, let me say, I'll say it this way. It's harder to be a Cowboys fan than it is to be a Texans fan. Because you know the Texans will never win. The Cowboys at least <laughs> The Cowboys at least give you evidence that they might make it. So I've been a Cowboys fan for a long time, right? And I moved out here Roughly, but not halfway, but it sounds like it when I talk to y'all. Halfway between the Houston Texan fans and the New Orleans, um, what's that team over there? Um, halfway between those two, um, as a Cowboys fan, as a lifelong Cowboys fan, it's hard to do that. Because there are times that they bring me right up to the verse and say, yes, that's my Cowboys and then they get on the field and they just blow that. 
So I find myself season to season going, do I'm going to follow these guys anymore? Or not? I don't know if I'm going to do that. Like, yeah, so, you know, that part of me that just refuses to die says, I know you're going to stick with it, so stick with it. And then they start playing again, and I just go, ah, these bunch of knuckleheads. Um, you know, there's a lot of those kind of Jesus fans in church. When Jesus starts off, oh, they love that. But sooner or later, somewhere in there, it doesn't go exactly as they might want it to go. And so those Jesus fans kind of back off, go, well, I don't know, not too much. That hot and cold Christianity. I, I want you to hear me say all of these types of soil that Jesus talks about here, our churches represent all types. There are those people who are in our churches. Maybe you're one of them today. Who's that first type of soul? You just, I'm not sure I'm buying into that whole Jesus stuff. That's okay. I mean, it's really, it's not okay. I want to give you freedom and I want to give you space for your opinion. But let me tell you something. I pray that you at least be honest enough, enough as an unbeliever to try it out to see if it's true. Because when you try who Jesus is and the kingdom truth that he teaches, it revolutionizes life for us. So there's all kinds of these people in our churches. And this fickle hearing group is the group that are the fans until they're not going to be fans anymore. This is verses 5 and 6. And Jesus said, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Doesn't that sound nicer, the slant approach that Jesus gives? Doesn't that sound nicer than what I want to say, which is you're unstable. You need help. But you see, that's offensive. And people say, well, who are you to judge me? And so instead of the right between the eyes truth, Jesus comes around the backside. We find that. Verses 20 and 21, where he explains this one, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. The fans. And the fans are fickle. Jesus knows. There's another group. This is the promising hearing. I mean, what they hear and what they seem to show is promising. This is a group that I call the special interest group Christians. Now I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, well. These are the flavor of the day Christians. You want to know what the flavor of the day is in Christianity? Go to the Christian bookstore. Generally, I'm not going to recommend that you go to the Christian bookstore. There's too many Christian books in there. But you go to the Christian bookstore, and normally they will help us try to be flavor of the day Christians because they'll throw these marquee, not marquees, these display things in front of us with whatever is the flavor of the day in Christianity. You remember when that Tom, what's his name, Tom Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks did that movie about Bible codes? Remember that? Hello? I know that it's time to go to lunch, but you do remember that, right? 
I, I don't remember the name of the movie because it didn't impress me that much. Um, but I do remember all of a sudden you could buy any number of books about the Bible codes and how to understand the deeper stuff, the mysteries of Scripture. You know why bookstores sell that stuff? Because Flavor of the Day Christians buy that stuff. This is that group of people that get fixated on an element of Christianity. Please hear me, okay, especially if you fall into that group. Uh, it's not that those flavors of the day are wrong. It's just that they're never meant to be the major truths of the Scripture. And some of them are not right. You need to have some discernment about that. But this is that group of people. I, I've seen this everywhere I've ever been, everywhere I've ever been. Preacher, you need to preach on the second coming of Jesus. Okay, I'll preach on it. I'm going to give you my whole sermon repertoire right now about the second coming of Jesus. He's coming. You better be ready. Okay, that's done. <laughs> but you see, that's not enough for the flavor of the day, Christian. It's, i got to have more. I need to know all the little ifs and but Do you think that Vladimir Putin might just be the Antichrist? I don't know. I'm thinking maybe you are right now. No, not really. I don't ever think that. Yes, I do. Okay, I, please hear me. It's not that those things are wrong. Second, eschatology is a huge part of what we find in Scripture. But when we fixate on that stuff to the detriment of living the Christian life every day, then we're wrong about how we do it. So this is the promising hearing group, the flavor of the day Christian. And we find this in verse 7 in the first part when Jesus first tells the parable. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22 gives the explanation. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful, unfruitful, excuse me. So if I wanted to be unslant about this, if I wanted to just throw the truth right between the eyes, I would say, you need to get balanced. And you need to focus on Christian growth, not special interest group Christianity. But you see, that's offensive, and people don't want to hear that. So Jesus comes at this group in chapter 12 who won't accept him for who he is, and he comes subversively around the side, and he gives them truth that they walk away going, I don't get that. And his disciples go, now there's something to that, but I'm not sure I get it. So he explains it to them. And finally, and I'm out of time, I know it. This is the genuine hearing group. How many of you are educators in here? You work in the education system one way or another. Tell me if this is true or not. One of the best encouragements for a teacher is to have a student who gets it. You have so many students who don't get it that when that rare bird comes through there, you go, wow, that kid gets it. It's like, okay, this is why I do this. Last weekend, I had that of sorts. Uh, Brandon's here today with Mackenzie, uh, greatest granddaughter in the world. Um, not Brandon, but Mackenzie. Um, and uh, last weekend, we had the opportunity to go to Edinburgh, which is where y'all got me from. And uh, no, they won't take me back, so you're stuck. Um, my son is a youth minister in that church, my other son. And uh, so they were ordaining him into the gospel ministry. And so we had a chance last weekend to go be part of that 
whole weekend's worth of stuff. Uh, and as affirming as it was to be there at a church where we had poured our lives for 20 years and see people and those kind of things, um, probably for me the most uplifting part of the whole weekend was actually my son's wife. Her name is Selena. I'll try to get through this without breaking up. But uh, Selena, um, now there's, there's an interesting study, Selena. When Colin first brought her home, which was seven years ago now, I don't know how long ago. They dated for a long time. It took him a long time to work up the nerve to ask her to marry him, I think. Um, but when he first brought her home, because we had this deal with our kids. You're going to date, whether it's a girl or boy, you're gonna, you bring them to the house so we can meet them. And so Colin came home the first time he'd met her and his eyes were rolling in his head. Mom, she's pretty. You know. So when he, he brought her to the house, I started going, I don't know about this one. Um, she had an earring stuck in her lip. Now, I didn't know if she was blind and she just missed in the morning or <laughs> kind of started thinking later maybe she was hanging utensils off of that so that she could just eat. I, but she, the earring in her lip thing, and uh, this is a lot of years ago before it was normal, uh, she had purple hair. Um, and so I'm thinking, ah, and so we start talking to Selena and, you know, Selena comes in to that circle of our family and she doesn't know the Lord. Matter of fact, now this I liked about her, okay, she, she was not bad, but she came out of another faith group. Um, I gotta be careful. Let's say, it, it rhymes with Catholic, okay? Um, and... What I liked about her right away is when I found out she got kicked out of CCD classes for asking questions the priest didn't want to answer. I thought, okay, now this girl I like. But the more we talked to her, the more we realized she didn't know the Lord. She was a good person, seemed to have good morals, poor judgment, dating my son, but, you know. So... That's who she was. And we watched through the years as they dated, as she began to warm to the gospel message, as she began to experience the reality of the love of God in her life. And a number of years ago now, she made a profession of faith and got to baptize her. But going back down there, for my son's big coming out party in ministry... I was struck with her and how many people in the church, when they talked about him, they talked about her. How she loved people. How she counseled those teenage girls. How she had her own ministry at this point. She graduated college in December, went to work for Buckner's as an office manager in a mission outpost in Pinitas, Texas, if you think it's bad anywhere else in Texas, go to Pinitas. And she is ministering through Buckner's in that area, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And I flashed back to the purple-haired lip ring girl. And I thought of this verse. Of the seeds fell on good soil. And produce grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. 
Verse 23, Jesus explains it by saying, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the truth that if we didn't tell it slant, we would say, You're an awesome student of truth. The question today is, which soil are you? Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask you to take your truth and in that divinely majestic way, speak it into our lives and change us to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.